Why? Because everything has been revealed through His holy and written Word. He's given you everything pertaining to life and to godliness. How much does the Father love you? He loves you so much that He gives you the Word of God that you have the freedom to pour in, to memorize, to preach, to instill into your family, into your life. Wow. It's one thing for the Father to reveal all to the Son. Oh, great. That's great. I'm happy for you. But then Jesus flips it around on his head and he says, For all the things that I've heard from the Father, I have made known to you. We would like to welcome you to Getting in the Word with Pastor Stuart Guthrie. Pastor Stewart is the teaching pastor of Family Bible Fellowship in Early Branch, South Carolina, and he has been teaching through a series on the book of John. We hope that you will join us as we begin Getting in the Word. Here is Pastor Stewart. Today we're going to face one of the most premier passages on the deity of Christ. The deity of Christ is a foundational truth to the Christian faith. A matter of fact, if we fail to believe the deity of Christ, it would be the same as to rob Christ of his proper worship and exalted honor, which is rightfully his. Deity of Christ is foundational. It's salvific. And one of the greatest doctrines that must be grasped in the Christian faith It's not an optional belief, but rather one of the core values of of evangelical Christianity. So it's one we must learn. We must know. And we must understand the deity of Christ. Because to have a low view of the deity of Christ is to have a low view of God. So what do I mean when I say the deity of Christ? I don't want to assume that you know. I know that we have young people here and we have those that have come to faith in their relationship with Christ. They're new believers. And so what do we mean when we say the deity of Christ? Because within that framework of the deity of Christ, we find the triunity of God, the Trinity. It must be affirmed that the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. I love what Erickson said when he stated at one point in his writings, The Son is the divine in the same way, to the same extent as the Father, and this is true of the Holy Spirit as well. Any orthodox statement of doctrine of the Trinity must acknowledge the deity of each of the persons of the Godhead. Therefore, the deity of Christ is a part of that concrete foundation that we have for which our faith stands on. And so you may be wondering, where do you see that in the Scriptures? Well, I thought you'd never ask. Jesus in the Scriptures, and there's no way that I can pour out all of what the deity of Christ has proof in the Scriptures, but... By way of introduction, so to speak, there are several things that I want to bring to light. Jesus shows us very clearly in the Word of God that He can only be God in the flesh. Because only God alone can make the claims that Jesus made. 
in the Word of God. And specifically in our text today. And so if you got your pens and your Bibles, this would be a great opportunity for you to prepare to take these notes right there in your text so that when you approach a Jehovah's Witness or someone who does not agree with the deity of Christ, you'll have an, a tool in your toolbox of arson to show from the Word of God why we believe that Jesus Christ is God. And so we see the first thing that I want us to see is that Christ has control over eternal destinies of people. We see him claim it in Luke 12, 8 and 9. He says, I say to you, everyone who confesses me before men, the Son of Man will confess him before the angels of God. But he who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. We find in John... This as well, John eight twenty three to 24, and he was saying to them, You are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, and I am not of this world. Therefore, I said to you that you will die in your sins unless you believe that I am he. You will die in your sins. And here in our text this morning, as we'll look at, it says, For not even the Father judges anyone. But he has given all judgment unto the Son, so that all will honor the Son, even as they honor the Father who does not honor the Son, does not honor the Father who sent him. Jesus has divine ability to judge people's eternal destinies. And only God can do that. Now, while I don't have time to get into all those proofs of the deity, we're going to see like five in our text today. But here is just kind of an oversight in which we find the deity of Christ, the, 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 the equality of Christ with God. We see uh, this proof in the divine name that Jesus is referred to in the Scriptures. We see this in His divine attributes in the Scriptures. We see it in the divine and mighty works that only God can do. A matter of fact, in John 14, he says, believe me or believe because of the works themselves. We see it in the divine triune relationship between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. No doubt that the deity of Christ screams out from the pages of Scripture. We see that deity of Christ and the fact that Jesus controls eternal destinies of all people. But another one I really enjoy is to see it as well as Christ as he is willing to receive worship. I mean, from the beginning of Jesus' life, we see this unfold in the Word of God. As soon as the Magi laid eyes on the infant Christ, what does the text say? It says, they bowed down and they worshipped him. We find that in his triumphal entry to Jerusalem, Jesus received worship. It says they took branches and palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. They worshiped him. Just after Jesus amazed the disciples by walking on the water, I would venture to say that's uh, pretty amazing. It says in Matthew 14, 33, those who were in the boat worshipped him saying truly you are the son of god 
Remember those women in Matthew 28, Mark 16, Luke 24? We're on their way to tell the disciples about the resurrection. He'd seen the risen Christ. And the text says, when they realized that he had met them, it came to him and clasped at his feet and worshipped him. So not only does Jesus have divine ability to judge the eternal destinies of you and me and all of humanity, he also, in his ability to receive worship, proves that yet he must be God. Why? Because worship is for God alone. Remember the Shema? In Deuteronomy 6.13, it says, You shall fear only the Lord your God, and you shall worship Him. No other gods. You better bet it would be wise that we not try to receive worship unless we are God, because worship is for God alone. He is a jealous God. And he does not share his glory with you or with me or anyone else. John points to the fact that not only Jesus has the ability to judge people's eternal destinies, not only is there a willingness on Christ's part to receive worship, but Jesus claims to have the ability to answer your prayers and my prayers. He claims the right to forgive sins. Remember, he healed the man just a few weeks ago, and he meets him in the synagogue, and what does he say? Go and sin no more. He even has authority over the Sabbath that we looked at last week. He was the Christ of creation. He's divine. We see that he created all things. In Colossians 1, 15 to 18, it says, He is the image of the invisible God. When you see Christ, you see God, because if you've seen me, he says, you've seen the Father. He's the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, whether rulers or authority. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and, and in him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body of the church, and he is the beginning and the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. This morning I was given this. It's a statistical survey, a a, a recent poll of the U.S. Evangelicals Review. 78% of evangelicals believe that Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. 78%. Folks, we don't know our Bibles. There has never been a time in which Christ did not exist. This is the very firm foundation of the equality of God with Christ, the deity of Christ. It says it right here in Colossians. All things have been created for him and through him. He is what? Before all things. 
56 say that sins of small amounts don't matter and don't deserve hell. Listen, the Bible says we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The deity of Christ means he retains all attributes of God. These things would be very clear to the people of the day in which Jesus is claiming these things too. Nowadays we have just all kind of whatever you want to believe, believe it's all relative, right? There's no absolute truth. Therefore, it's not unusual. If you don't believe me, go to California. Been there for a week. Ate dinner in Hollywood. Ate dinner at Beverly Hills and shared the gospel five times. We tell you what, we live in a world when about anything is possible to be believed. But it doesn't matter what you think or I think. What matters is what the Word of God says because this is the only thing that is absolutely true. And therefore, it should go under the microscope of everything we believe. Anyone claiming these things, like Christ has been claiming, would have been fair game for the, the highest rule of blasphemy. And therefore, we see the reason behind verse 18 when it says, For this reason the Jews, therefore, were seeking to kill him all the more. Why? Because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but he was also calling God his own Father, making him equal to God. You remember they tried to stone him. Why? Because he made himself out to be God. And while we don't see it, Jesus say, I am God, right? There's plenty of passages that point to the fact that he has to be God because of what he claims. So the deity of Christ, listen, is the central theme throughout our passage today. I love what Dr. Abraham Curavilla would have said. He, if he was teaching, he'd say, the deity of Christ this morning, I want you to know, is the rest of the text. It's the pericope. <laughs> what do those mean? <laughs> yeah, I had to look them up when I was in seminary. So if you will, let's dig into the text this morning. To see that Jesus, as he stands and gives sort of a courtroom defense for his equality with the Father. And keep that in mind as we, as we look at This is really five defenses in which Jesus gives to you and for me to understand he is equal with the Father. And so here are the five defenses that I believe bring about equality. That we can learn and understand and hone in as we look at the importance of the deity of Christ. First, I want us to notice that we see a purpose-driven equality. Secondly, I want us to see a works-revealing equality. Thirdly, we see a life-giving equality. Fourth, we see a sovereign-transferring equality. And lastly, we see a reverence-revealing equality. Now, I do not expect you next week to go, hey, what were the five points of the sermon? These are not easy ones to entitle. Sometimes you open the scriptures and the points just are very simplistic. But these, I think, will give us the ideal of, of each one promoting equality. And so let's begin to see and understand this morning the, these five areas in defense. And so let's begin by looking at first the fact that we see a purpose-driven equality. 
So we have set the stage already with the ideal that the reason these people wanted to kill Jesus was because he made himself equal to God. It says in verse 18, For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, which is a big no-no if you're a Pharisee, but also was calling God his own Father, making him equal with God. This equality with God, I believe, was a special relationship. It wasn't, listen, this is important, it wasn't an equality that would take the place of God or replace or supersede God. For we know that within the Trinity, there is God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and there is complete equality. In which I state the purpose, there is a purpose-driven equality. One that is honoring one that is uplifting, one that is respecting, a respecter of relationship between the Father and the Son. Notice, if you will, with me, verse 19. Therefore, Jesus answered them and was saying to them. Notice, if you will, that that, that this is the purpose of the verse, the purpose of what we're about to look at between verses 18, 19 to 24. He is writing to us these things, giving us the why of the text. Why is he doing these things? And it's here that we come to this small little word, therefore. And I know it's a rogue routine, and I know most of you go, why do you say this every time you come to it? But what do we do when we come to the word, therefore? We ask, what is therefore, therefore? Because it points us back. And that's important. It points us back. John is giving us a reason for a defense for Jesus and his deity. For the fact that Jesus and the Father are equal. Because Jesus made the claim in 5.17, my Father is working until now and I myself am working. They realize that Jesus is saying there is never a time in which God stops working. Now, this seems pretty simple, doesn't it? But let me tell you, I've been in a church and I've had people come up to me and I said, hey, I didn't see you Sunday. Are you okay? Is everything? Yeah, I just was tired. And so I decided not to come to church and I said, oh, I get it. And he goes, you know, I think it's okay to take a day off every now and again. I believe that God takes a day off every now and again. Oh, really? Could you imagine one minute, one second? Without the sovereignty of God over sinful Stuart? (laughs) Much less sinful you and sinful everybody else. I mean, could you imagine if God took a time off how evil would we become? I mean, we're already evil and we're spirit-filled. Can you imagine how you would deal with people who irritated you? How you would handle your spouse, your children, or a co-worker? We'd just slay them, wouldn't we? We do that already. We're not even... God doesn't even take a day off. Listen, there is never a time in which the Father love stops working. The grace of God doesn't take a day off. There is no vacation time. He doesn't take days off for holidays. But rather there is a persistence that God confirms through the working 
of his son Jesus Christ in our lives daily, minute by minute, second by second. And the Sabbath hindered, is not hindered by this work either. God works on the Sabbath, and so if the Father works on the Sabbath, guess what that means? Jesus works on the Sabbath. That means when God wants to heal somebody, Jesus is in the process of watching it unfold, and that's what he does. He heals the man. And the Pharisees are mad, not because he's healed, but why? Because he's walking with his palate. So it's kind of like a like-father-like-son relationship. God works when and where he wants to work, and the Son is likewise. Because within the divine equality of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, namely Jesus Christ, there is a purpose-driven equality between God and Christ. There is a purpose. And we see this as he states his defense when he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son does also in like manner. If you see men being healed on the Sabbath, know that God the Father is working because Christ is working. It's like a father-like-son relationship. The heart of this relationship that Christ has with the Father, I believe, is one that you and I should have as well. You say, this is the difficulty. How do we apply the deity, the relationship between God the Father, God the Son, between you, Christ, me, my children, right? How How does this apply to our life? It's great to know that, yes, God is, Christ is God. It's great. How does that apply to me? Well, I think it's encouraging for us because I believe the same relationship that Christ has with the Father, you and I should have with Christ and our children should have with us because it drives us to an opportunity to be like an apprenticeship relationship. You know, one of the things I noticed this week, out of all the speakers, I noticed one thing. They all had two or three that were with them at all times. You never found H.B. Charles by himself. You never found John MacArthur by himself. You never found Steve Lawson by himself. You never found any of them. Vody Bachum, none of them by themselves. They always were accompanied by two or three because there was an apprenticeship relationship. What they were doing, they were equipping and training someone else to do. The idea would be the same for us as a father leading his family, his children, his sons, his daughters. It would be like me taking my son Elijah and walking alongside of him, teaching him the ropes of landscaping, learning what it is to be a man of God, right? Learning how a young man should treat a woman, learning all that a man should do and should not do so that he would be doing what I am doing. Now, this is where we, we either say amen or we say ouch. Paul points to this very idea when he says in 1 Corinthians four sixteen he says, Therefore, I urge you to imitate me. Why? Well, 1 Corinthians 11, 1 says, Be imitators of me, Paul says. Why? Just as I am also Christ, of Christ. 
You see, Christ only did what he saw the Father doing. He doesn't act as an independent agent of the Father. Rather, he acts as a dependence upon the Father. And it does the work that God has for him to do. Like heal the man on the Sabbath. Like minister there in Samaria. I must go through Samaria. He heals the official son, even though he's faithless. Unless you people see signs and wonders, you will not believe, so let's, your son will be healed. Like the preaching of the revival in Samaria. He only does what the Father wills him to do. For whatever the Father does, the passage says, these things the Son also does in like manner. Can I ask you a question today? And I can promise you one I've already asked myself. And I think that's important. Right? H.B. Charles wrote a book on preaching, and, and one of his titles is in chapter... Uh, yeah, I should know this. Um, a sermon to an audience of one. And basically saying this, you don't preach to people until you preach first to yourself. So I've asked myself these questions. And sometimes they're painful. If Jesus only does that which he sees the Father do, shouldn't we likewise only do that which we see Jesus do? Because he is our Heavenly Father. He's Christ. The perfect one who fulfilled the law. And if we are only doing what Jesus does, then shouldn't our lives be worthy of following? I mean, our wives, our children, those that we disciple, the body of Christ, shouldn't they live as we live and follow us as we walk? Like Paul said, therefore I urge you to imitate me. Let, let me answer that f- for us. And I say us because this isn't just a congregational call. This just, it's a Christian call. It's a pastor call, it's an elder call, it's a deacon call, and the answer is yes. The answer is yes. We should imitate Christ in so much so that we should be comfortable with those under our leadership, in our homes, in our lives, to say, be imitators of me. Just like we saw, Paul said he'd be imitators of me. Just as I also am of Christ. The prerequisite through all of this is that we first must be imitators of Christ. So here, here's the exhortation. Here's the application to put together in the form of a Pleading question. Are you an imitator of Christ? Are we imitators of Christ? 
And let's, let's just narrow this thing down to where it really hurts. Are we imitators of Christ when we're alone? Because we can all act like we're something when we're in front of people. But God knows our heart. The sad part is this. Whether we're imitators of Christ or not, there's always somebody following us. The way you deal with people, is that the way Christ would deal with them? The way you handle your spouse, is that the way Christ would do that? The way you lead your wife and your family, is that the way Christ would do it? Ladies, the, the way you submit unto your husband, is that the way God would do it? Is that the way you see Christ submitting unto the Father? Not my will be done, but yours, Father. We are either leading people to Christ's likeness or we're not. Fathers, I, I like to start with men because I, yeah, you know, that's me personally. I'm a father. So let, let's just put our name in there. Stuart, right? Alan, David, I, I call you guys. Scott, Dale. Are we leading our families? Are we setting good examples for our daughters to see what a godly husband should look like? They don't need any help of what it looks like jacked up, I can promise you. How about our sons? What it is to be a godly father and what that should look like. We can't expect our children to be what we aren't willing to be. And we can't expect our children to do what we are not willing to do. It's, it's a like-father-like-son relationship. Like mother, like daughter. We are what we eat. And they are what we feed them. Wives, women, are you setting a good example? For your daughters, for your sons, to see what a godly spouse should look like. Not what the world says you should look like. Chasing after this and that and trying to be at the top of the ladder, the corporate ladder. But being satisfied with what God says is best. Listen, if, if it was up to me, I'd be preaching the 5,000. But I have to be satisfied, right, with what God has entrusted to me. I could get all distracted, right, and try to be something that God hasn't intended me to be. But faithfulness isn't preaching to large quantities of people. Faithfulness is being faithful where God has you, with what God has called you to do, with the giftings that he's blessed you with. Blessed you with. Get that. That's good English. <laughs> so, ladies, are we training our girls what it is to be a godly wife? A godly mother? A godly helpmate? 
We can't expect our children to be what we aren't willing to be and expect them to do what we aren't willing to do. And we can apply that to every area of our life. Not just children, because not everybody can have children. God hasn't blessed everybody with children. The reality is, are we being obedient to what God has called us to do? Are we faithful? Because, listen, the reality is, is what I learned in the corporate world. You can't expect what you don't inspect. And so it begins by looking here first. I can't worry about you all. Like, I'm concerned about you, and I pray for you, and I love you. But, listen, I got my own mess, right? I'm not the perfect father. I'm not the perfect pastor. I'm not the perfect husband. And so these words penetrate my heart just like I pray they penetrate yours. Because if you're sitting here this morning and you think, oh, I'm just so perfect and godly, behold, watch out. Because let me tell you what opportunities lurk every second of the day. And we're so easily able to fall. We are so easy to be distracted. We should reflect Christ in our lives. That's not the culture we live in, I know. We, we want to do what we want to do, and we want to do how we want to do it, and when we want to do it. That, my brothers and sisters, is pride. And if we're going to be honest, many times it's idolatry. When we lift up and exalt things that God says is not our responsibility, not our purpose, and we elevate those above our families, that's idolatry. So that we can be like them who wanted to make a name for themselves so they built the tower, right? Hmm. I heard the sternest sermon I've ever heard in my life from Dr. MacArthur on idolatry. And as a pastor, it made me tremble. His prayer was his only prayer that he closed with was that no man in there would be disqualified. Listen, idolatry is not a road we want to travel in any area of our life. Jesus is equal to the Father, to God, because of a purpose-driven equality, and we should follow in his footsteps. But not only do we see the purpose-driven equality, we see a works-revealing equality. Notice, if you will, with me, verse 20. It says, For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself is doing. And the Father will show him greater works than these so that you will marvel. That, my friends, is a works-revealing equality. Because the Father loves the Son, He hides nothing from Him, but rather He reveals all the works that He is doing. God, the Father, shows the Son all that the Father is doing. He hides nothing from Him. Therefore, Christ is all-knowing. Notice, if you will, with me, these two Greek terms. The English words are loves and shows. The Greek word here used for love is phileo. 
It, it means a deep, personal, engaging love. That, that's cool, right? That ain't what's cool about it. Th- this Greek word, deinemi, which is translated show, that's a cool word too. But what these two words have in common is their tense. It is in the present tense. Both of these verbs are in the present tense and point to the fact that the Father's love and His revelation are continual. His love for the Son is unending. And the revelation that God shows Jesus Christ is unending. He reveals to him all things at all times. Therefore, Christ is all-knowing at all times. Only God can be all-knowing. Only a special relationship can see what God is doing. And only one that is deity can see the eternal Father's will. Boy, if we could figure out that. I'm always encouraged by the fact that Jesus is all-knowing. Isn't that great to know that God, that Christ is all-knowing? He knows what you're going through. He knows your struggles. He knows your weaknesses. Right? It's an encouraging thing to know that that Jesus Christ is all-knowing. The Father is showing and loving. The fact that He does this proves that He, Christ, is equal to God. He's all-knowing because the Father reveals all things to Him. When is the last time we thought about that? Christ is aware of all things. We saw it when He met the woman there at the well. Remember in chapter 4, verse 29, when He says, Come, see a man who told me all things that I had done. Christ knows all things because... He knows all things. He's fully God, fully man, and has to has revealed that unto us through His wit, written and, and, and vital word. Remember what's said in John fifteen fifteen. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know his, what what his master's doing. But I have called you friend, for all things that I have heard. From my Father, I have made known to you. He says, I'm made known to you. All that God has revealed to Christ has been made known to you. Man, that thing makes me want to dance. Why? Because everything has been revealed through His holy and written word. He's given you everything pertaining to life and to godliness. How much does the Father love you? He loves you so much that He gives you the Word of God that you have the freedom to pour in, to memorize, to preach, to instill into your family, into your life. Wow. It's one thing for the Father to reveal all to the Son. Oh, great. That's great, I'm happy for you. But then Jesus flips it around on his head and he says, for all the things that I've heard from the Father, I have made known to you. He's revealed the mysteries. Not new revelation. 
not will reveal, but has revealed. It's in the past tense, meaning it's taken place. We have the fully revealed word of God that has been made known to us. This was a reality for the disciples, but how much more for you and me? Listen, the Father loves the Son and reveals all things unto Him, and Jesus loves you and me, and the text says that what He knows, He showed us. God loves us so much that He reveals to Him all He's doing, and He reveals to us all that's happened. All the things that I've heard from my Father I have made known to you. How much more should we Again, this relationship between the father and son applies to our life, doesn't it? I didn't didn't realize this until I started looking at it. How much more should we, the receivers of God's revealed words, then also, like Christ, be distributors of the word? And how is the only way we can distribute the word? That's right. You can't give what you don't got, right? And so if you're not in the word, then you ain't going to give it to nobody else. But we have a responsibility. Everything has been given to him, has been given to us, his word. So let's ponder this question together. Here's... The exhortation, the application, are we in the Word? Are we in the Word? Are we in the Word by which the Father, through the love, has given for the Son revealed to Him, also revealed to us? Are we giving what we are receiving to those around us? The word which the Father out of love for the Son gave to the Son and the Son out of love has freely given to you and me. Are we freely giving it to our wives? I've got to start with me. My first ministry is my family, beginning with my wife and my children. Am I giving the word of God to my children? Am I giving it to my congregation, my friends, and even strangers. I was once a stranger. We, because we are loved, must make known to others out of this same love by sharing the word. We need His Word in our lives. And I'm not talking about simply reading through the Bible in a year. Praise God if you do that. That's that's important. But I'm talking about hiding the Word of God in our hearts. Ingesting it. Meditating on it. That's what he says. Meditate, right? Meditate on it day and night so that you will what? Be firmly planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in the season as the leaves do not wither. And in all that he does, he prospers. If we want to be effective for the gospel, then we must hide the word in our hearts and then regurgitate the words back out. Wow. Are we doing that? And if we can sit here this morning and say, no, I don't do that, and we can just lackadaisical go 
out throughout our week and it never, it doesn't convict our hearts, then boy, we ought to question what's going on inside of our souls. Because if we can just come to church and sleep every Sunday and have no impact in our lives with the gospel's sake, shame on us. Shame on us. Jesus Christ, God became flesh and dwelt among us and he lived the perfect life so that we might have life and have life abundantly. But boy, he has given us great responsibility, hasn't he? He has given us great responsibility. The word of God is the love language of God. He loves his son. In John 3.35, the father loves the son and it says, has given all things into his hand. So he reveals to him and listen, God still revealing to us through his written word, his truth today for his glory. There is a personal relationship here that shows a revealing equality. But notice what he says at the end of the verse. And the Father will show him greater works than these so that you will marvel. We've already seen these. Foretelling of the future of the woman, healing the lame man, healing the official, all done so that we might marvel. The whole point of John, right? I've written these things so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that in believing you might have life and have life in his name. John 14, in the upper room discourse, Jesus is speaking to his disciples. He says, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. It's done so that we might know he is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that we might believe in his name. So we have to ask the question, not only are we a word, but have we been impacted by the work of Christ? Are we saved? Have we placed our faith in Jesus Christ? If you've not trusted in Jesus Christ, not your works, not your efforts, Galatians 2.20 says, if salvation can come by the law, then, then, then Christ died needlessly. I'm not talking about what you can do for Christ, but I'm talking about what he can do for you. And if you've not placed your faith in Christ alone, let today be the day of salvation. Place your faith in Jesus. It's a pleading. It's a begging. I am begging you on the behalf, on the mercies of God, put your faith in Jesus Christ because we're not guaranteed tomorrow. This is real business here, folks. I could, right now I could kill over and it would be over. No more opportunities. Don't let today slip away without trusting in Christ. He is giving you his word, truth, and love. You simply must have faith. He's revealed it to us. We've seen the purpose-driven equality, a works-revealing equality. And thirdly, we see a life-giving equality. You should already know where I'm going with this one. A life-giving equality. These greater works that we just talked about, these are them life-giving works. Because the Father has given these into the hands of Christ, we can see the power and deity of Christ. Because only a God that can raise men from the grave, the only one who is able to create life, is the only one who can bring life back from the grave. John 5.21 says, For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so the Son also gives life to him to whom he wishes. 
It's another powerful statement of who Jesus Christ is. God, the Son in human flesh, with all ability, with all power, to raise life from the grave and to give it to whom he wishes. Can you see? Can you feel that drawing of the Spirit of God in your heart to believe? Because I want you to know he's a life giver. And it is the the biggest decision you will ever make. He's paid for you. He's made a way. Now you like one thing, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. He's a life giver. Let me remind you of a life giving story. The last miracle John records is the raising of Jesus' friend Lazarus. After he had lain in the tomb for four days. One translation says, he stinketh. <laughs> Remember that text, John eleven three to 4? Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. But when Jesus heard this, he said, this sickness is not to end in death. That's all knowing right there. Only God can claim that. Only God could possibly know what's going to happen. But for the glory of God, not for you, not for you to be excited, not for him, right? Not even for him, but so that God will be glorified, so that the Son of God may be glorified. It all boils back down to Christ, doesn't it? So when Jesus arrives at the village outside of Jerusalem, the text says Jesus came and he found that he had already been dead in the tomb four days. And he says, remove the stone. And she says, Lord, by time there shall be a stench. For he has been dead four days. Jesus stood before the tomb. They rolled the rock away. And he said with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. Now, I don't know. He could have said, Lazarus, come on out here. I, I don't know. But I would think with authority, he would say, Lazarus, come out. I don't know. That's all acting right the fact is he said rise from the dead (laughs) you see jesus is god in flesh because he's able to give life to whom he wishes just another defense for the deity of christ in which jesus is speaking to these pharisees who seek all the more to kill him because he is making himself out to be equal to god and not as he running away from it he's standing up to it and he answers them I am God because I give life to whom I wish. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Jesus is a life giver. But he isn't only a life giver for the physical. He is a life giver for the spiritual. While I can't promise you life back from the grave... What I can promise you this morning is for those that are living in the flesh, yet dead spiritually, that if you will trust, place your faith in Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ, the fact that he paid for your sin on Calvary at the cross, was buried and was raised on the third day and ascended up to the right hand of the Father where he now intercedes on our behalf. If you will place your faith in him, he will give you spiritual life and where you never will thirst again. Because everyone who lives and believes in me, he says, will never die. 
that, my friends, is eternal life-giving power that is only able to be given by God. That is the life-given equality with God. So we've seen the purpose-driven equality, the work-revealing equality, the life-giving equality. Now we see, fourthly, a sovereign-transferring equality. Now, I, I had originally said sovereign-giving, but I made it, I changed it to transfer this morning. So we see a sovereign transferring equality. There is a transfer that takes place here where the father shows the world that his son is equal because he has all authority. Only God can have authority over all things. The text reads in John 5, 22, For not even the father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the son. All hail the power of Jesus' name. The Son of God does that which the Father does. God's judgment is the same as Christ's judgment. And because it is, all of His judgment is righteous judgments. It ain't like our judgment. We love judging people. Right? We love playing God. We love trying to change the hearts of people. And we love judging people. We love judging the decisions that someone makes in their family because it doesn't look like ours. We love judging everything about everybody's life, but we're not righteous judge. And I can pretty much bet you that if we make a judgment to give somebody, it's done in an unholy manner and therefore not honoring to God. And it is not representation of what Christ would have done, but rather what man be done. And we become our own God, our own idol, and therefore we become disqualified. And in the Old Testament, millions of bodies dead because of their idolatry. We've got to be careful. God has given Jesus Christ all authority. We see it in Matthew 28 when he says, All authority is given to me in heaven and on earth, right? And if he has that authority, then we ought to remember that, but we ought to remember what he says. Go, therefore. Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe all of commanding you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Listen, we see that God has given him power in, in authority. We see it in creation. We see it all over in his deity because he's equal to God. And Jesus, when he claims to be the only way, you better bet the bottom dollar he is the only way. Good works won't get you there. Faithful attendance won't get you there. Living a good life won't get you there. Letting the good outweigh the bad won't get you there. It rather will place you under the judgment that's been given to the Son to judge you. John 14, 6 says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. So which way have you taken? Because... The one whom we claimed as deity, as God, says, I am the way. I am the truth and I am the life. There, he's not a way. He's not the best way. He's not an option. Right? You want to see what this says too in this sheet? Let's flip it over. I know I read it here. Hold on one second. God accepts the worship of all religions, including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. You know how many people believe that? 51% of evangelicals. This is LifeWay research. This is, this is legitimate. You know the problem? We don't know our Bibles. 
You know why? Because we don't preach the Bible. And when the Bible is preached, we can't deal with it because we've been babied our whole lives and we don't know how to listen to the Scriptures. From 9 o'clock to 8 o'clock, I listened to sermons. And I ate it up. Sixty-five, Over 65 pages of notes I took. 65! <laughs> Come on, give me some more! Right? That's, that's what we should be doing with the Word of God. And Steve Lawson just slapped me around as a preacher. I mean, stepped all over my toe. I'm like, good, praise God. I need, I need that. Give it to me. You know? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. We don't get to choose options of direction and how we get there. God says I am the way. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, or you will be judged by Christ, whom the Father has granted all authority. Because when you reject Jesus Christ, you reject God the Father. Because the sovereign God has given the sovereign Son all authority, and today you can place your trust in Him. We see this sovereign transfer of equality, but lastly, fifthly, I'm getting ready to close. We see a a reverence revealing equality. And notice, if you will, with me, the second half of verse 23. I'll read 22 and 23. For not even the Father judges anyone, but He has given all judgment to the Son, so that all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father. Who does, he who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. So we must honor Christ for who He is. Equal with God, fully God, fully man, complete deity. So how do we honor the Father? Well, it takes place by honoring the Son. And what honors the Son is spending time with Him and telling others about Christ. He hasn't given us a lot to do, has He? Like, we confuse it. Like, we want to read books on how to do this or that. What, you know, what's the best? He says... Proclaim the gospel. He ain't giving you a whole bunch. He didn't say go to seminary and learn theology, which I think theology is important. Doctrine is vital. But he didn't ask us to do all things. He said, what did he tell the man that he healed there at the lake of Gehenna? When he, he said, Jesus, I'm going to come with you. He said, no, no, no. Go back and tell them all the good things they, that I've done. He didn't tell them go teach them soteriology or angelology or you know, Christology or he, he didn't tell you to do all that. He's, he said, go tell them of the great things God has done. Listen, the one thing that you have that no one can take from you is your testimony. Your testimony. It's powerful. But it takes us honoring the Father by honoring the Son, relying, trusting, and believing, and leaning on the everlasting arms of God. Listen, failing to have a high regard for Christ reveals a low reverence of understanding for God. I met with a Muslim. God, in His sovereignty, allowed me to be on a bus alone with a Muslim from the airport to the rental car company. And I shared the gospel with him. And I'm telling you today, He has a false understanding of who Christ is. He says, Christ is a good man. I said, no, 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 no. He's either God or he's a liar. He's either a liar 
lunatic, or Lord. He can't be either or. He had a poor view of Jesus, and because of his poor view of Jesus, God sees it as an unvalued view of himself. And the end result isn't what he's expecting. By God's sovereignty, I met a Hispanic guy in the bus from the rental car place back to the airport all by myself. And guess what? I got to share the gospel with him too. Neither received Christ. It's not my job, is it? Are we willing to tell? 0 for 5 this week. 0 for 5. But can I ask you a question? Did you even get up to bat? That which is important to you, you will do. Let us, like the Father, copy Him so that people can copy us. We want to thank you for joining us on our program today. We pray that you are challenged, encouraged, and hope that you will stay connected with us for the weeks to come as Pastor Stewart walks us through the book of John. If you don't have a church home, Pastor Stewart would like to personally invite you to join their worship service at Family Bible Fellowship in Early Branch, South Carolina. They meet each week at 11 a.m. For more information about the church, visit them at familybiblefellowship.org. Thanks again for being with us and have a great week.